Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. And as you're turning there this morning to 1 Thessalonians, I want you to picture in your mind any town USA and I want you to picture in your mind First Church USA. It doesn't matter the denominational label. You can put Baptist, you can put Presbyterian, you can put Nazarene, Evangelical, non-denominational, Assembly of God, whatever you want to put. But picture in your mind an Evangelical church in any town America. About 30 years ago, this church was a small, struggling band of committed believers. And they believed in the power of prayer, and they believed in the power of God, and they held fast to the Scriptures. And they weren't big in numbers, and they weren't big in prominence, but they just held fast to what God had called them to do in being obedient. And they didn't give in to a lot of the fads that came around in the 1980s and the 1990s. They, they weren't concerned with fads. They weren't concerned with trends. They just wanted to be obedient to what the Bible said. They wanted to be salt and light to their community. But yet about 10 years ago, a new pastor showed up to the church, a young pastor. And over time, the sermons changed. Yeah, the Bible was used, but it really wasn't used to to bring comfort and encouragement. It was more a springboard for the pastor to tell stories about himself. He became more of a motivational speaker, giving people happy tips to have a better life. He never talked about sin. He never talked about the cross. He never talked about repentance. He never talked about holiness. He just wanted to make sure that people were happy. And over time, some of the symbols of of the faith, like the cross, were taken down because we don't want to offend anybody with symbols of our faith. And over time, this small, struggling band of believers became a megachurch. A million-dollar budget, million-dollar buildings, million-dollar programs, and they were the most popular church in town. Thousands and thousands of people went to this well-oiled machine that really didn't look like a church. It looked more like a Fortune 500 company, and the pastor was not a shepherd. He was a CEO, and his job was to make sure the shareholders kept coming back, so he would do whatever he could to make people happy. Everyone was content. Everyone was happy. They made decisions based upon popularity, not upon godliness. And so it really didn't matter your character. If you were in leadership, you just had to look the part. You had to be popular. You had to be a heavy hitter. We don't care about biblical qualifications. What we really care about is is how you you look. It's, It's all about image. Children were being taught happy stories in Sunday school with no biblical content. The youth group had no depth at all. But yet everyone kept coming back week after week to hear 
sermons about themselves and to keep the machine running. And it was the most popular church in town. It was the biggest church in town. And everybody was coming to this church. It had the reputation of being alive, of being powerful, of being effective. But underneath the surface, there was something deeply wrong. For you see, the people that started that church, the older people, were concerned. But they kind of wanted the new pastor to kind of spread his wings and try out new things. But they lost their identity. They lost their obedience. They lost who they were. They were lulled into a false sense of security and misplaced priorities. And everything on the outside looked good. The bills were getting paid. People were coming. It was the most popular place in town. What more could God want in this church? Brings up a very important question this morning. What really is an effective church? An effective church. Because when you look around at American Christianity, you can get really confused about what is considered effective. Is it being a megachurch? Is it having big buildings and big budgets and big personalities? Is it a slick marketing campaign to target the niche audiences of the community? Is it the latest, greatest in technology, in media? Is it this well-oiled machine where the pastor is more like a CEO and the church like a corporation than a family? Does it mean that a church is effective if it doesn't step on people's toes? Does it mean that the church has political clout? Does it depend upon size, whether you believe it's a mega church or whether it's a small group? I asked you an unfair question. I hope you caught it. Because the way I frame the question is more based upon American pragmatism than about the Bible. What question did I ask? What's an effective church? I don't care what an effective church is. Now let me qualify that statement. The question we should be asking is more important. The question is this. What's an obedient church? Because here's what's going to happen. When we are obedient, God will take care of our effectiveness. When a church is obedient to what God calls the church to do, He in His time and in His way will make the church effective. You see, a lot of churches are trying to figure out how to be effective, how to be slick, how to be cool, how to be hip, how to be popular, how to, how to, how to be relevant. When really they should be asking the question, how do I become obedient? Obedience is the most important thing God's looking for. Relevance will take care of itself. Effectiveness will take care of itself. But I'm concerned about obedience. Is the church being obedient to what God has called us to do? I've given this quote before, but I I think it needs repeating. It's by Leonard Ravenhill. I got to go slow because this is a powerful quote. The New Testament church did not depend on a moral majority, but rather on a holy minority. The church right now has more fashion than passion, is more pathetic than prophetic, is more superficial than supernatural. The church that the apostles ministered in was a suffering church. Today we have a sufficient church. Events in the spirit-controlled church were amazing. In this day, the church is often just amusing. The New Testament church was identified with persecutions, prisons, and poverty. Today, many of us are identified with prosperity, popularity, and personalities. Last week, Paul introduced us to what it means to be a true Christian. 
So last week's message is, what is a genuine Christian? What's a true Christian? And we, and we looked at some marks. It means that God in eternity past has chosen us for salvation because he loved us. And then at a point in time, the gospel came to us with power and with full conviction in the Holy Spirit to where we became converted and we believed in Jesus. And then our lifestyles changed to where we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, faith, hope, and love, and obedience to Christ. And then we are prayer for people and thankful people. That was last week's message. But now in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul is going to shift gears a little bit and he's going to address the church at large and he's going to ask the question and answer it, what makes an obedient church? What is an obedient church? And as I've said before, if we focus on being obedient, God will make us effective in his time and in his way. So let's read together 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 6 through 10. And I want us to ask some serious questions of ourselves this morning and some serious questions about Emmanuel Baptist Church this morning. So let's pick up in verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve God the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In verses 6 through 10, Paul succinctly gives this snapshot picture of what an obedient church looks like. And let me just give it to you in a succinct sentence. And I'm going to unpack this sentence. I'm going to unpack this, this concept as we go forward. Here's the big idea. An obedient church is united in three things. Imitators, examples, and repenters. Now, what in the world does it mean to be an imitator, an example, and a repenter? What in the world does this mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. And I'm glad you're here this morning because what Paul does here is he gives three characteristics of an obedient church. Three pictures, if you will, of what this church in Thessalonica was known for, and really a mirror for us to hold up and say, are we living in light of these three chief characteristics? So notice how verse 6 starts. It starts with and. You don't often start a sentence with and, but really Paul is connecting this back up to what he talked about last week. We give thanks. This, this whole chapter one is about thanksgiving. And so Paul is giving thanks to the Lord, not only for their salvation, but now he's giving thanks for how they were an obedient church. And so it starts with Anne there to link back to Paul's main idea that this is one huge thanksgiving for this church. So how is this church united in obedience and effectiveness? Let's look at these three characteristics. First of all, the church is united as imitators. As imitators. In verse 6, they're united as imitators. And so here's the point of verse 6. An obedient church imitates Jesus by suffering with 
joy. An obedient church imitates Jesus by suffering with joy. What does verse 6 say? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says you become imitators of not only me, but you become imitators of Jesus himself. And they'd they'd received the word in much affliction. If you remember how this church was planted back in Acts 17, we'll keep coming back to this. This church was planted in the midst of a riot, in the midst of a persecution, in the midst of extreme danger. And that's why Paul uses the term there, much affliction. There's much affliction, much persecution, much um, tribulation going on in their lives. But, But Paul says, listen, you imitated us and you imitated Jesus. And so let's ask the question, How did they imitate Jesus? What does it say? You imitated Jesus by having joy in suffering. So how did Jesus have joy in his suffering? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, tell us how Jesus responded with joy in suffering. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How did Jesus respond in the midst of suffering? It says there he responded with joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So Jesus endured the cross with joy. I don't understand it. I can't comprehend it, how Jesus would be joyful in my quiet time this morning. I was praising Jesus for being joyful in the cross. And I said, Jesus, I don't understand this. I don't understand what you went through. But I'm just thankful that you had joy when you went to the cross. And we're to imitate that, that type of joy in suffering. And and it says here that, that they were imitators of Paul as well. How did Paul respond to suffering? Do you remember how Paul and Silas were thrown into a deep, dark, dungy prison cell in Philippi? How did they respond when they were in chains? Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas are in chains, in prison, and they're praising God with joy and singing hymns. Here's a hard truth that we as comfort-loving American evangelicals need to get into our brains this morning. Jesus was no stranger to suffering and intense persecution. The apostles were no strangers to intensity or intense persecution and suffering. The past 2,000 years of church history shows that the church has not been a stranger to intense suffering. So why in the world would we think as we as Americans are somehow immune to this? We think for some reason we get a free pass because we're Americans and we shouldn't have to suffer, we shouldn't have to go through tribulation, we shouldn't have to go through trials because after all, we're protected because we're Americans. There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. <laughs> the question is not if I'm going to suffer. The question is when. When am I going to suffer and how am I going to handle it? Listen to some of Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, be happy, be glad, rejoice when you're persecuted. Consider yourself blessed. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted for you 
for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted for us to suffer for Christ's sake. And then in 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you know what one of the chief characteristics of an obedient church is? And this is not on the, if you go to magazines and you look at the internet and say, what's an obedient church? This is not on the top of the list, but here it is. We rejoice in suffering like Jesus. You rejoice in suffering. So are you rejoicing in your suffering? Are you suffering well? How are you handling adversity? I'm very, very concerned with the word, faith, prosperity, gospel movement that's taking over America and the world. It is growing by leaps and bounds all over the world. It's the theology, the false theology that says this. God never wants you to be sick. God never wants you to be poor. God never wants you to have anything wrong go in your life. As a matter of fact, it's God's will that you're always happy, that you're always healthy, that you're always wealthy, and that you have your best life now, and that you should never have any problems. It's very self-centered, it's very narcissistic, and it's ungodly. And besides that, it's just unrealistic. I don't know about you, but I've suffered this week. Maybe it was a flat tire. Maybe it was, a, you know, uh, uh, an ingrown toenail. I don't know. There's suffering that goes on. We can't say that, like, we're, our heads are on the chopping block, uh, you know, suffering for our faith like our, our brothers and sisters around the world. But you've suffered in some way this week. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James says, count it all joy when you suffer. And listen to what Paul says as he's teaching in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22. He says, and through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So please, church, don't give in to the false gospel of the prosperity gospel that says it's God's will that you are always happy, always healthy, always wealthy, never have any problems in your life. And, and if, it's, if you do have those things, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith. Don't buy into that. Here's where this gets very countercultural and counterintuitive. Because here's what happens. The more we suffer... Actually, the more effective we become as a church. We often think it's the other way around, right? Our minds tend to think if everything's going good and there's no problems and everything's good and we're powerful and we're prestigious and we're popular and everything's going our way, then we'll be more effective. But that's not what the scripture really teaches. The scripture is counterintuitive. It says when you suffer, when you're weak, when you're poor, when you're hurting, when you're needing, that's when you're the most effective. Because it's then that the Holy Spirit shows up and does things that you can't produce in your own power. That's effective. So let me just ask you a simple question. Has the prosperity gospel worked in making churches more effective in America? It hasn't worked. Is our nation more reached now than it has ever been? Or is our nation more ungodly now than it's ever been? 
Is the church in America effective with all of its prominence, with all of its prestige, with all of its power? Are we being more effective? Or do we think about the churches in China and churches in Sudan and churches in places where they're closed countries, where the, the, the government's coming down upon them with an iron fist? Those churches are being effective for the gospel. And how are they being effective? They're being effective in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. So let's not settle for a Christianized version of the American dream that's self-centered and materialistic and narcissistic and says it's all about me, which I'm afraid is where the nature of our church in America is going. It's all about me. And we are afraid to suffer. But I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I will say this, suffering's coming to America. We've got to be prepared for it. And my job as pastor is to prepare you for that, to imitate Jesus in suffering with joy. But notice what Jesus has given us. Look at the last half of verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You, you, you've imitated us in Jesus, for you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a wonderful gift to empower us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to produce his fruit within us so that we can suffer well. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us to produce this joy. We can't produce the joy. We can't manufacture the joy. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and give ourselves joy. It's the joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. So it, it begs a question. Okay, if we're to have joy in the midst of suffering and we're to have joy in imitating Jesus and we're to have joy in imitating Paul and we're to have the joy of the Holy Spirit, what is joy? What is joy? You know, over my Christian life, I, I've struggled with this because I really can't define joy. It's one of those things you either know you got it or you don't. But here's my best shot at defining joy. It's a deep-seated sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not depend upon circumstances, but rests in the unchanging grace of God. Just leave that up there for a moment. It's deep-seated, meaning it's, it's not a surface thing. It's deeply in our hearts. It's deep. It's a peace and contentment and satisfaction that, 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 that we have a peace that passes understanding. It's a rest that comes over our souls. It's this whole idea that we're secure, and it doesn't depend upon circumstances. The whole world could be going to hell in a handbasket around us, but we are secure because we trust in God's unchanging grace. God is the one that does not change. Circumstances may change. God does not change, and because of his love and his grace and his power and his security, he gives us that inner sense of, of, of peace, of joy, of contentment that no matter what happens, we're going to be secure. And that can only come from the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as a gift. So the first major attribute of an obedient church is one we'd not think of. An obedient church imitates Jesus and how we suffer well in the power of the Holy Spirit. Are we suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Are you imitating Jesus? I don't have time to do this now, but go back and do a word study of all the times the Bible says imitate especially in the New Testament, to imitate God, to imitate Jesus, to imitate Paul. There's a biblical principle that we are to imitate, to act like. 
our Savior. So imitate Jesus. But what's the second one? Secondly, we are examples. We see this in verses 7 and 8. An obedient church serves as an influential example to others around us. Look at verses 7 and 8. We are examples. So that you became an example. Some translations may say model. An example or a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. It's, it's, it's a very rare word that Paul uses here. It's the word typos. We get the word type from it. But it means more than just kind of an example. It really means a mold or an example or a model that actually has influence and is worth emulating. In other words, Paul says, you guys, you church, you're a model that's worthy of being imitated. You're an influential example. You're an example that people actually need to follow. You're influencing those around you. And notice what he says. You're influencing an entire geographic area. The believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the northern part of the region, the southern part of the region, what what churches did that expand and involve in? Philippi, Berea, Corinth. Those churches were being influenced by this one church. Now, have you ever thought about this before in yourself personally? Have you ever thought about yourself being an example or a model to somebody else? An influential example. Parents, you're influential examples to your children, whether you like it or not. Those of us who have been Christians a while are examples to those who are younger in the faith. Maybe the people that you work with, you're an example to. Here's the thing. Everybody's an example. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? And Paul says here, church, you're an example worthy of being emulated. You're having influence. And here's the issue. It's, it's, it's one thing for a few people over here in the church to suffer well. But Paul uses the singular, you're a model, not models, you're a model to the other churches. Meaning that the entire church was being mature. The entire church was being a model. The entire church was being an example. It wasn't just a few people here and there. And now what, how were they being a model? Well, Paul says you're being a model in two specific areas. First of all, in your lifestyle, in your faith, he says, your faith, verse 8, your faith, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone out. Remember last week he talked about their faith, their, their, their lifestyle of faith, hope, and love, this, this consistency, this, this bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, your faith, your lifestyle, the way you guys live, it's evident. You're being a model in your lifestyle, in your faith. It's evident. People look at you as a church and say, yes, you guys are displaying the fruit of the Spirit. It's evident. Your faith is evident. We don't need to say anything about it. But notice the second thing he says is that you're being an example in your verbal witness. In your verbal witness. Look at the first part of verse 6. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, the word of the Lord, the gospel has sounded forth. Only time that word's used in the New Testament. Right here, sounded forth. It's where we get our word echo. It means to echo, to sound forth. It was often used of the waves crashing on the sea or of a a trumpet blast or of a dog howling. It's this whole idea that their faith and their gospel reverberated, echoed out into a geographic area so that they had a major impact. They were being an example in their lifestyle. See how these two things come together? It's very, very hollow to give a gospel message and not have a lifestyle that backs it up. 
But that both of them were together. It was the lifestyle that backed up the gospel message and the gospel message that had a lifestyle that backed it up. So both were going out, both were echoing out, both were reverberating out so that Paul says we don't have to say anything. When people talk about you as a Thessalonian church, you're a model because you're bold about the gospel. It's going out and your lifestyle backs it up. You're a model. You're an example worthy of being imitated. So here's a huge question for you. Does that describe you? That your lifestyle is so consistent and your verbal witness so consistent that you're being an example, you're being a model, whether you know it or not. You're having influence on others around you. And is our church experiencing that? Is our church having an impact on a geographic area? Because everyone connected to Emmanuel is living the lifestyle of faith and we're being bold in our gospel proclamation. So let me ask you this. What makes an obedient church? Well, an obedient church suffers well by imitating Jesus, but an obedient church also is a model. It's an example in our lifestyle and in our verbal witness of the gospel. So not only are we imitators of Jesus and examples to others around us, but here's the third mark. We are repenters. We see this in verses 9 and 10. So here's the third thing. An obedient church is continually repenting from sin and serving God with patience. Now this is counterintuitive. When was the last time you had a conversation about church life and you said, hey, that church over there, they're making an impact. That church is awesome. That church is big. That church is powerful. That church is really making an impact. You know, that church is a bunch of repenters. What? Yeah, that church is a bunch of repenters. Well, that's not the, that's not the answer I expected to hear. They're a bunch of repenters. What, what do you mean, repenters? Does, does this surprise you? What does it mean to be a repenter? Paul gives kind of three pictures here of repentance in this passage of Scripture in verses 9 and 10. He gives kind of three descriptions of this transformation that happens when you repent. Look at what he says in verse 9. For they themselves report concerning to us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. They turned from idols. That's none other than repentance, turning from idols. Now remember, Thessalonica was full of idols. They may have had little statues of Aphrodite in their house. They may have gone to the temple to do um, some temple prostitute type orgies and drunkenness to the goddess of Bacchus. Their idolatry was rampant. They may have dabbled in Egyptian astrology. And so what Paul's saying is you've turned from that. You've abandoned those idols. You've, you've, you, you've, you've renounced those idols. You know, I'm going to be going to India in a few weeks. And it's interesting in India how people deal with idols. They're all over the place. Idols are all over the place. You can't, you can't just get off the bus or get out of the airport and not just see idolatry everywhere. But you go into a Hindu's home, and they have all these statues on their wall and all these pictures on their wall, and they're all the different gods they worship. So there may be Ganesh. There may be you know, all these different gods. And what's interesting is that Jesus may be in there. They may have a picture of Jesus among them. And so to them, Jesus is just one of the many gurus that's going to help them. He's just one of many they've added into their life to worship. You know a Hindu is truly becoming a Christian when all the other gods go down, all the other idols are out, and the only picture left is Jesus. You know, in Hinduism, where there's multiple gods, it's hard for them to realize there's only one true God, and his name is Jesus. They turned from their idols. This turning involves a 180-degree turn. A change. They were clinging to these idols. They were holding on to these idols. They were grasping these idols, and they threw them away. They turned from them. They, they got rid of them. 
that word turn there really means to be, to, to, to repent. And, and, and the idea there, that word turn there in the, in the original language, is not only that you have a change of attitude, that your mind gets changed, and, and that you, you kind of you know, don't like sin anymore. The, the idea of that word turn conveys that you actually, there's actually a change in behavior. There's a change in lifestyle. There's a change in habit. There's a change in your total life. You've gone, you've, you've gone through this major transformation where you've, you've made an 180-degree change from where you were before. You've got a different life. You've got different affections. You've got different habits. You're no longer holding on to those idols. Now, none of you here are going to have a statue of Ganesh in your home, I hope. None of you are going to have little statues of Aphrodite on your mantle that you're going to go home and light to the goddess of love. Hopefully not. But all of us in this room have idols. They're idols of the heart. They're idols that we hold deeply onto. And let me just say this, anything in your heart this morning that has a higher place than Jesus is an idol. And it can be a lot of different things that are idols to you. It could be success, it can be sex, it can be money, it can be a relationship, it can be a marriage, it can be a spouse, it can be prestige, it can be popularity, it could be a career, it could be a sport, it could be your children, it could be anything that you hold on to and says, that to me is the most important thing in my life and I'm not willing to give it up. That's an idol. And it can be a good thing. Because the only one that's to have supremacy in your life is Jesus. But see, the Thessalonians forsook their idols. And here's what happened. When they got rid of their idols, it brought the heat. It brought the heat. That's why they were experiencing persecution is because they weren't living the same way they lived before. They had repented. And that's why they're experiencing all this affliction. And so here's what's going to happen to you. If you truly become a repenter, if you truly change and your lifestyle begins to change, there's going to be people that aren't going to understand. They're going to make fun of you. They're they're not going to understand what's going on. And you may experience some heat. You may experience being made fun of or having a different lifestyle. But turning to Jesus is more valuable, more excellent, more powerful, more worth it than any idol that you are holding on to. So let me ask you a question. What idols are you grasping onto this morning? What idols are so deep down in your heart that you're not willing to give them up? The Bible here says they turned from the idols. But not only did they turn from the idols, but look at the second thing Paul says here in verse 9. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Once they turned and did the 180-degree turn from the idols, now they begin to serve the living and true God, to serve as a lifestyle, to give their lives in service. And, and when the Bible says to serve God, it's more than just this token service. It's your entire life. It's everything about you. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul says this about what a lifestyle of service looks like. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See, that's a true lifestyle of worship, where you serve a living God is where your mind begins to get transformed and you undergo this total change to where your entire life now is a sacrifice of worship to God, your entire lifestyle, not just lips, but life. So how has that happened to you? Have you turned from your idols and now you're serving with joy the living God? It's a lifestyle of service, a lifestyle of giving yourself wholly to God in worship. Then the third thing Paul says here is they were waiting. They're waiting for the second coming. Verse 10, and to wait 
for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of come, to come. They were waiting for the second coming. They had turned from their idols, they were serving God, and now they're waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's the blessed hope that Paul says in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope we're waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great and God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's what it means to wait. Or what it doesn't mean to wait. Is Paul saying, we sit here and we twiddle our thumbs as we wait for Jesus to come. I really hope he comes. I'm just going to kind of sit here. No. As we wait, Paul says we wait with an attitude of expectancy, but a lifestyle of godliness. Notice what he says there in Titus. As we're waiting, we rely upon his grace to say no to ungodliness and to live upright, godly lives in this present age. And so waiting involves godliness. It all ties back to repentance. It's a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of serving God. It's a lifestyle of waiting upon God. It's a lifestyle of holiness. It's what it means to be a repenter. All repenting means is that your life has changed and now you live the way a Christian is supposed to live. And Paul gives a warning there. He says the day of wrath is coming. Now, as Christians, we don't have to worry about the day of wrath. Why? Because the wrath of God has been poured out upon Jesus in our place. Jesus took that wrath upon himself so that we wouldn't have to take it. And when we trust Christ for salvation, we get the, the blessing of forgiveness. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, 9. Therefore, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The blood of Christ saves us from the wrath of God. So as Christians, we don't have to worry about that final day, that day of wrath. As Christians, we don't have to worry. We wait for it with joy. We wait for it with expectation. It's not going to be a day of wrath for us because Jesus already experienced that on the cross. But if you're not a Christian and you haven't repented and you haven't turned from your idols, that's a day of wrath for you. So the question is, well, what brings God's wrath? What actually brings God's wrath? Well, the Bible answers it. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, Paul says, you may be sure of this. Everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which are idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, what Paul is saying is, be a repenter. Put those things to death. As you're waiting for Jesus to come back, and as you're serving the Lord, and as you've turned from idolatry, you are to be constantly putting to death these sins. Because if you continue in these habits, if you continue in these sins, if you live a lifestyle of habitual sinning like this, there's a day of wrath coming for you. So put those away. Repent. So that you don't have to experience that day of wrath. Live the way Christians are supposed to live. So, so Paul says, there's three things about a church. That makes it obedient. You imitate Jesus in your suffering. You're an example to others in your faith and in your witness, and you also are a repenter. You're purifying yourselves as you're waiting for the second coming of Christ. So let me make this really personal this morning. Very personal. 
Can you truly say that you individually and we as a church are united as imitators of Jesus? Question number two. Can you honestly say personally, individually, and we as a church, that we are united as a model, as an example to the world around us? And can you truly say that you individually, personally, and we as a church are united as repenters in that we're turning from idols and we're serving the living and true God? My vision for Emmanuel Baptist Church is that we'd be a Thessalonican, Thessalonian-type church. Not to draw attention to ourselves so that people say, look at Emmanuel. No. I want it so that we can be obedient and God is glorified. I want to be an imitator of Jesus. I want our church to be known. That church imitates Jesus. That church is a model of godliness That church is full of a bunch of repenters. If there's one thing about Emmanuel, they're repenters. I know it sounds weird. And so my question is, do you truly want this? I mean, I know I want it, but do you want it? Because what Paul said last week has been ringing in my ear. The gospel came to them with power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you want that to happen in your life? Do you want that to happen in our church? Do you want the power of God? Do you want the Holy Spirit of God? Do you want the gospel of God to make bear upon our congregation so that we're never the same? I want that. And here's the hard part about it. I can't produce it. And you can't produce it. But we can sure ask for it. So that's what I'm going to ask us to do this morning. I'm going to ask us to ask for it. And here's how I'm going to do it. I think there's power in getting up out of your seat and making a statement to come to the front and kneel before a holy God and get on our faces as a church and say, we want this. We want to be imitators. We want to be an example. We want to be repenters. And we're not doing it for show. We're just doing it as an act of humility to come before our great God and just bow before him. If we can't come as a church family and bow before God here in this place, then where can we do it out there? So I'm going to invite you to come even right now. The praise team's going to come, but if you, I just want to invite you. If you feel led to come down to the front, I just want us to come and just bow our faces before God and just spend time in prayer as a church family, asking God to do a work. come and we bow ourselves as an act of humility. Father, we don't deserve anything that your hand of grace brings, but you're such a good God that you choose to shower us with blessings. And Lord, at times we are so ungrateful. So Father, I want to publicly confess my sin of ingratitude. But Lord, I'm more apt to complain. I'm more apt to gripe. Lord, especially about things in our church. So forgive me of that, Lord. Father, you know I love these people. And they love you. And Lord, what a privilege it is to be a family.
And we want to be imitators of you, Jesus. And we want to be examples to others around us. And Lord, we want to be repenters. And so, Lord, if there's idols in our hearts this morning, would you just smash them down? Take them away. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that's not right with you, would today be the day that they get right through salvation or maybe just through a recommitment? Lord, we want to be obedient. And then we're thankful that you take care of the effectiveness, Lord. May we be known as an obedient church. Not so that we can brag or boast about what we've done, but we can point people to what you've done. And Father, our prayer is that the gospel would come in power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit. That people would get saved. Lives would be changed. Father, marriages would be restored broken homes would be healed you turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children and Lord wayward children would come back to their parents Lord we need you desperately we can't do this ourselves we can't program it we can't manufacture it So we come on our knees in desperation to ask that you would help us. And Lord, we ask in faith because we know that you're a big God and can do it. So thank you in advance for what you're going to do. Lord, may this be a turning point maybe in our church's life to just be serious about getting on our face before you and desiring to be different. Would it be said of us that we're imitators, we're models, and we're repenters for the glory of Christ in his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.